and welcome to Talking and Shoal, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Sadler is out again this month. We miss you, Zahava. We're lucky to have Rabbi Annie Lewis joining us this month as our guest host here with me in Philadelphia. Hi, Annie. Hi, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. This month, our first topic is the Israeli TV show Shtisel, which was recently, or Shtisel, which was recently released on Netflix in America. And for our second segment, we're going to be talking about gender and Jewish life cycle events. How can we approach welcoming ceremonies for new babies and celebrations for Jewish young adults in ways that aren't gender essentialist? So we have a lot to talk about. Mimi, um, you suggested that we talk about Shtisel, so I'm really excited to uh, to hear your thoughts. Take it away. Yeah. So a little bit about Shtisel. Um, Shtisel, as Tamar said, is an Israeli drama about a Haredi family living in various neighborhoods around Jerusalem. The father is a guy named Reb Shulam. He teaches school, and when we first meet him, he's sort of awkwardly grieving his wife, um, who's been gone for about a year. His youngest son, Akiva, is an adult who still lives at home. He is an artist, and one of the things we know about him is that he keeps rejecting potential matches from the local matchmaker. We also meet, in the first couple of episodes, Giti, Akiva's older sister, who is married with five children and a deadbeat husband, who we learn a lot more about. Um, So... Like Tamar said, I was the one who suggested we watch this. I had seen a few people on Facebook commenting about this great show. Um, and I'm curious, what, what did you guys think about it? Well, first tell us what you think about it. Well, I, okay, this past weekend in the Boston area, at least, was really snowy and like just frigid. Um, so I pretty much binged most of season one and really like... It's a, I think it's a slow start, but I fell in love with the characters and I got, I think I, I was really intrigued. One of the things that people, that a lot of the reviews mention, but that I agree is very unique is that it's about a Haredi family and a Haredi friends, but not about traditionally we see like their conflicts with being ultra-Orthodox, and this show is not about that. They are ultra-Orthodox. Some of them have a slightly different practices, but there's not this, like, grand leaving narrative, at least not in the first eight episodes. Um, and so I liked that it was about normal family drama um, and coming of age and grief and looking for romance, but within an ultra-Orthodox setting. Um, So I really appreciated that. I also liked that, though the main character is Akiva, um, we get to meet some interesting female characters who have, who the show lets have an inner life that is affected and impacted by the men in their lives, but but they have real things going on. real plot lines that get fleshed out over the course of the season. Um, And, you know, we sometimes don't see that in non-religious TV shows. Um, So that was, that was cool. And 
I, I loved, um, my Hebrew isn't great, but I love watching Hebrew, watching Israeli TV shows to get the Hebrew and a little bit of the um, Yiddish that they throw into. So those were some of my highlights, but what do you guys think? Yeah, so my disclaimer <laughs> is that I've only seen one of the episodes. I um, have this problem that when I try and watch shows, I often fall asleep. So not... Because I don't like the show, but just because I have a six-month-old baby who doesn't <laughs> sleep that much. So if I'm like sitting still and uh, watching a screen, I just, I can't help it. I pass out. Um, yeah. But I did, I tried three times and eventually I got through the first episode, the pilot, and I did um, really like it. I'm excited to watch more. I feel it will take me a while to get through the rest <laughs> of the show. But I also love the Hebrew and the Yiddish Um mixed up together and um it's the character of Akiva is interesting to me sort of his own attempts at differentiation and um I love learning little details about him that he's an artist that he um is committed to finding love in the way that that he wants it you know not in rejecting the community as you mentioned it's not about like leaving the community but about sort of within the boundaries being able to also um honor who he is and what he wants so found that interesting tamar i thought i was gonna love this like i really went into it assuming that i would be super into it and i just found myself not liking these people and not wanting to spend more time with them. Akiva is kind of the main character, and I just found him to be kind of mystifying and not in a, like, sexy way, but in a, like, not, like, repulsive, but just, like, not sexy. Like, I was like, this is, like, a young dude who doesn't have his stuff together and is, like, being a jerk to people, not really on purpose, but just because, like, that's the way he is, and it's, like... Yes, that's definitely, like, a real kind of person, whether Haredi or not. But, like, I really don't want to hang out with people like that. I don't like it. And I just was, I was not into it. But I will say the exception to that is that I was super interested in Giti. And, like, I would watch, like, a super cut of the show that's just, like, Giti scenes. <laughs> Um, because she seems like totally fully realized and interesting and she's in this difficult situation. She has all these kids and I felt like the show wasn't, I agree that it wasn't like a show about how, about people wanting to like leave the Haredi world, but it also was realistic about how hard it is to be a woman in some of these situations um and I really appreciated that and thought it was um it was cool and the other character who I was like super into and I only watched two episodes because I was not enjoying it um was um so the father in the family Reb Shtisel Reb Shtisel he has a like a woman who is like maybe his girlfriend he like goes to her house and eats her food I guess in the middle of the night and (laughs) um and it's just really confusing like what 
their relationship is. And she clearly is like, at some point she's like, let's go on a date. And he's like, mm, I don't know. It's kind of, he's like, tries right. to get out of it. And it's just, it's unclear to me, like, what is the nature of their relationship? Like, I was also like, are they sleeping together? I don't think so. But no, whenever he walks in, he like leaves the door open. Yeah. Right. Right. But so having watched a little bit more um, and I'll try not I won't give any spoilers, but I think that an important element to that relationship, which I agree is really interesting and I like her a lot. She's strong. um, Is that though it's been a year since he lost his wife, he has not really come to terms with the fact that he is a widow. Um, And I think that the show seems to be saying something interesting about widows in in culture, I think, you know, in, in this Haredi world, but just generally, like, what opportunities do we give widows to continue to live a meaningful life and to have relationships? What does it mean if you live in a world where the only really, like, okay relationships are ones that are based in marriage, but you're you know, in your 80s or 70s, I don't know how old he is, um, and have just lost your wife. Like, if you're not ready for marriage, but you still want to, like, be in relationship with people. um, I I think it it does an interesting um, job exploring a few widows on the show, actually, and what, what the challenges are for them. There's another great character. Well, two other great characters. Giti's daughter, Ruhami, um, becomes really awesome. One one element of the show is that um, we get a few dream sequences. In the, in the um, pilot episode, we see Akiva's dream about his mother, who's passed away. Um, but we also get some of Ruhami's dreams about her father, who is gone for most of the first season. Um, and she's this, like, maybe she's 13. She's this sponge of, like, just sort of picking up everything that she comes across. At one point, she's reading to her little brothers, Hana Karenina. Yeah. <laughs> Hana Karenina to them. Um, and she, like, watches little illicit clips of TV with her grandmother. Um, and, and you see in her dream sequences her trying to make sense of the bits of culture outside of the Haredi world and her relationships within it um, in a really interesting, I don't know, I'm fascinated by her. Um, The other character who I love is the grandmother. I love old people generally, um, but the grandmother also has some dreams that get explored and, you know, she's living this new chapter of her life in a nursing home suddenly with a tv um so she has access to this world that none of her family does um she gets sort of swept up into soap operas but she's also like i don't know i think in a certain way exploring what this next phase of her life is and what's meaningful and how 
how involved in her family life does she want to be now that she's living away from them? So I don't know. I was a big fan of the show, um, obviously, and think that as family dramas go, I actually think it does a good job of like introducing some interesting characters with their challenges. Yeah. I feel like one of my big questions about it was just like, it, well, okay, a few things. One is that it's really, it's a really bleak show, or at least the first two episodes were really bleak. Like, it's about people experiencing kind of existential dread and heartache. And um, even though there's mo- moments that are really, really funny, it felt to me really bleak, and I think that was part of why I was just like, I don't want to watch any more of this. Um, I also, like, I know this is kind of always true in sh- in TV shows, but I found, like, the finances of the show kind of confusing. Like, I would imagine that if it's you're just, like, a school teacher in a cheder, you wouldn't have, like, a big apartment the way he seems to have. Um and even though, like, Giti is clearly, like, needs money in order to, you know, raise her five children without a husband around, like, everybody else seems not at all concerned about money in a way that I was surprised by um, and didn't make that much sense to me. Um, I also was really distracted by how clean everyone's apartment was Mm. (laughs) did you i don't know if this is like like a tv show thing or a like haredi thing but it's like the houses are immaculate all the time and i maybe this is just really about me and what i'm stressed about right now in my life (laughs) But I just kept looking around and being like, first of all, where's their stuff? Like an American family would just have like 80% more stuff in their house than these families do. Clutter five kids. Yeah. Yeah. But but I don't actually think that is unrealistic in my, you know, in, in the Haredi families that I know. They do have just like way less stuff, which is fascinating to me. The thing that that struck me about the apartments actually was how stark they seemed. Like you're saying, they didn't have much stuff. They they have, I think they did in some ways a really accurate job depicting the apartments with like paintings of rabbis um, and plastic over the tablecloths. Um, you know, there were certain elements. It, it's worth noting that the two writers of the show both um, are no longer Haredi but grew up Haredi or have Haredi roots. I'm a little bit unclear. Um, So I think there are certain design elements that they get right. I actually didn't put together the money piece. The father does have, I think at one point we learned he has a four-bedroom apartment like in the old city. Um... And I think that his mother has more money than he does because, as you say, he, like, teaches Gemara at a cheder. Um, But 
I I actually felt like there was this that some of the aesthetic was also the aesthetic of like poverty. Um you know, there's just this I don't know. I it's been a long time since I've been in Israel and I've never been in a Haredi home, but like all of the technology was really outdated. Like all of their phones this fo- this show was from 2013. But they all have like the little brick Nokia phones and these like really old looking kitchen appliances, these heaters that look like a total fire hazard. Right. I don't know. Cassette um, player and that one. Cassette players. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the TV um, also was like a big like a boxy. <laughs> right. 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 Grandma's TV is not a flat screen. <laughs> right. I I think that the phones actually are realistic because I think that that's one of the ways that people who are Haredi get around kind of the dangers of the internet is by having like older phones where you can't really go online. That makes Um, sense. So I think that is like a choice. Um, Although I'm not sure. Um, And... Yeah, the TV part. <laughs> I don't know. I do feel like in general it's easy to like for things in Israel to be like a few years behind and like I can imagine like the TV in an old age home would not be like the most up to date TV, so Yeah. That's true. That that like made some sense to me, but um yeah, I just like I have a lot of questions. I was like it wasn't that I really like sometimes we watch things and I'm like I hate this. And this wasn't that. It was just like, since I like have so little time to watch things, I feel like I might not come back to this. But I, on the other hand, I do really want to know what happens. Basically, only to Giti. I want to know what's the story with her husband. So, so I can to, like, I text you when I watch? Oh, okay. <laughs> I yeah. will just send you Giti updates. <laughs> uh, she's so strong. Um, I. Tamar, you you sent out a question that I think is also really interesting, which is, what do you think this show is trying to do? Um, do like, do you think there is an agenda about Haredi and secular? It's it's airing on a secular station. I mean, obviously, it's not something that Haredi people would watch. Though there is some indication. I don't know if you guys saw this Times of Israel article that I'll I'll share in the notes. Um, in the second season, the grandmother is humming this nigun, which was actually composed by one of the show's writers. Two days after that episode aired, a band at a Haredi wedding played what they called the shtisel nigun. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, it is some, it's somehow there's an awareness of it in the Haredi community, which I is mean, just fascinating to me yeah i it's not at all surprising to me that like there are some people who are totally watching tv in the clarity world like that's of course you know right, <laughs> like right. maybe they can't admit to it out loud but of course and especially like there's not a lot of media about them so like you know if somebody was making like a TV show about like a 
observant conservative Jewish family in Philadelphia, like you could not pay me to not watch. <laughs> like, <laughs> not exactly that. Um, yeah. Annie, maybe you would even stay up and watch it. Maybe I would. <laughs> I might. That could possibly keep me awake. But I really did want to know if it felt like an accurate portrayal. I think one of the things that struck me, it didn't feel like it was fetishizing the community or right. exoticizing the community, which I think sometimes yeah. um, things do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, And I thought, I mean, I thought that what it was trying to do was in a way like normalize Haredi life. Like to say like, you know, they have, they have just similar kinds of struggles. It's just in a different kind of context or whatever. Which yeah. I think was is fine. Um but yeah, I guess the bleakness of it was really did really get me. Um mm-hmm. like there's this scene in the second episode where um the matchmaker is talking about a woman who has been widowed twice and he compares her to a piece of schnitzel that has been cooked frozen and then then got cold and then reheated and then got cold again then reheated again and it was just like oh like that is so so horrible and just like the idea that that but i think we're supposed to think that it's horrible yeah like because kiva definitely does yeah i mean right i i'm not saying that the the show doesn't think that that is an appropriate attitude. Like the show is actually right. very sympathetic to this widow, but there's something so bleak about hearing about a community where that is really the view of this mm-hmm. person. And like, mm-hmm. I don't mean that as like a particular criticism of the Haredi community. It's too bad that this is how this woman is viewed, but I don't know. To me, the whole thing was just like too, too bleak. And Akiva is just this kind of like hapless loser who still, even though he seems like kind of a schmo, like ladies are lining up to marry him, which is weird. I told my husband I would like to imagine him with Paeus. I think Akiva is <laughs> you said that so before. cute. You really, really <laughs> want your husband to grow Paeus. I think Akiva is so cute. Daniel came home wearing black pants and a white shirt, and I was like, oh, my God, you look from, I I love it. (laughs) There was one scene where um, Akiva was giving the space heater Mm -hmm. to his love interest, and then, like, he plugged it in to demonstrate that it worked and the coils lit up these like red curly coils and I was like they look like his payas yeah. <laughs> like, his payas are you know on fire like it was some radiating kind of, like sexual innuendo <laughs> somewhere it the was coils and the clearly a and sexual the, innuendo and it was just it was exactly as awkward as that moment would be yeah yeah um let's stand around like, this back to the schnitzel for a second <laughs> yes. i do kind of let's love reheat that it, that shall was, we right exactly <laughs> take back out that schnitzel thought um i i do kind of love that that 
was the analogy. Like, <laughs> schnitzel. <laughs> like, even right. though it's I mean, terribly it's, offensive, it's like sort of hilarious. Yeah. That's you could picture the the schnitzel. Or I maybe I'm just hungry all the time and like, <laughs> really would love some good schnitzel right now. So Yeah. Um, I just also want to touch on the subtitles um in this show mm. because um my Hebrew is you know, B plus and um and I was really interested in the subtitling on the show because I felt like it took some liberties and I I should have written down examples of it. But there were places where I could see that it was like doing interpretation, not translation. Uh, I mean, all translation is interpretation to some extent. But there were places where it was like, oh, they're really like saying something else that they think means the same thing. Um, and... I was really interested in that because it felt I what I I felt like what it actually did was kind of like tone down the Jewishness of the mm. show like um it was kind of taking away some of the fla- the Jewish flavor in their kind of like everyday um conversations and on the one hand, I could imagine why you would want to do that if you were um, translating the show for people who are not Jewish but or just not familiar with those things. But I felt like it was a little – it just felt weird to me because it's like they're Haredim. Like you can't make – them less like it's weird to make them less jewish Mm -hmm. like the whole point of the show is like them negotiating their jewish lives in this context so i don't know it felt like a weird choice to me um but i also then wondered like i don't really watch things with subtitles that aren't hebrew so i was like i well i do but i don't know if they're accurate or not so like maybe if i knew spanish then I would feel this way about anything that I see that has spent that has English subtitles from Spanish. Hmm. There, um, there were moments when I wished that the subtitles had found a way to tell us that people were speaking in Hebrew versus speaking in Yiddish. Yeah, because I actually think that um, there's a different. I don't know. There's one conversation between the fa- between Shulam the father and his daughter Giti, where they keep asking each other like, "How are you? How are you?" Trying to figure out sort of what's going on with the other, and one keeps saying like, "I'm okay, Baruch Hashem," in Hebrew, thank God, and the other one keeps saying it in Yiddish. And I felt like, in some ways, they were talking across each other, or they were, you know, the fa. Sometimes the grandmother speaks in Yiddish and the father responds in Hebrew. And I just think that's relevant. I mean, the other um, Netflix big hit right now is this um, movie set in Mexico called Roma, in which the characters switch between an indigenous Mexican language and Spanish. And speaking in the indigenous language has a different meaning to them. And it's their sort of shared culture, whereas speaking in Spanish is the way that they communicate with the rest of the world. Um, and I just think like it's it's relevant in some sort of um, 
for some, in, in some of the meaning that gets missed through the translation. But there were also blatant moments where they just missed total whole, whole things that people were saying and little niceties that they would just sort of glaze over Hebrew and Yiddish. Yeah. I feel like if you know Hebrew, there's some good Easter eggs in there for you to find. I guess that's that's a bad <laughs> term. Afikomen? There's a, like afikomens in there. Uh, I'm just curious how they translate schnitzel. Right. Chicken patty. No, or do they like yeah. schnitzel? I haven't gotten there yet. So. I think they just wrote schnitzel. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I am... Uh, I was I was intrigued by it, uh, and I'm interested in. I I would love to like read an interview with whoever did the um, the subtitles. Well, I'm really curious to hear what our listeners think if they've seen the show and like characters that they're intrigued by. Um, just it's this show. I think just recently came out on Netflix and. I'm, I'm curious to hear what people are thinking as they watch it. Yeah, me too. So let us know. All right, should we move on to our second segment? Let's do it. Okay, so for our second segment, we are talking about two crucial life cycle events, a baby naming or a bris, um, and a bar or bat mitzvah. They're coming under new scrutiny because both of them are explicitly gendered. Traditionally, a baby boy has a bris or a brit milah, and a baby girl has um, a baby naming ceremony, which can be sometimes called a brit bat or a zevet habat. Um, and bar and bat mitzvahs sometimes are basically the same in communities, and sometimes in Orthodox communities, they might be pretty significantly different, um, where boys might read from the Torah and lead a service, and a girl might give a dvar Torah with, um, or just have a party with no ritual attached to it at all. Um, so I've just been thinking about this a lot and I'm interested in thinking about like as the Jewish community is learning how to include trans and gender nonconforming people, what, how do we deal with, um, life cycle events that have an explicit gender component, both like, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about these two these two in particular because like when you have a newborn baby you really don't know anything about that baby's gender identity mm-hmm. like it's gonna be a while until you have that information um so so that like has one set of complications and then for bar bat mitzvah like some kids will know at that point and some will not or maybe won't feel comfortable um and kind of creating a kind of situation that really embraces everybody but also I guess like my my gut feeling about this is like I think it's really important to be inclusive of everyone but I also let am someone who doesn't I don't want the gendered aspect of these um, rituals to go away um because I have some attachment to them and I think they have a value. Um, and so I've just been thinking a lot about like, how do we balance these things? What does that look like? 
Yep. I, um, I recently have been in conversation with a lot of friends about questions around a bris or a baby naming for a girl. Um, and I think there's something talking with new parents or expectant parents, there's something really kind of heavy and charged around creating this explicitly gendered ritual for somebody you do not know. Um, I think also like if you don't know the sex of your baby before it's born, then you're sort of like, what, what is this ritual? Who is this person? Like, what are we embarking on? And you're setting in some ways, like this is the first ritual, hopefully of many in this person's Jewish life. Can we set the tone in a way that lets this person know as they grow older that that their Jewish life is is totally inclusive um, to whatever identity they have as they develop that identity, and so it, it's a, it feels kind of like a lot of pressure as not a parent, but you know just thinking about the weight of that ritual for an unknown person. Does that I don't know, Annie? You recently had a baby and maybe have given this some thought what do you think about yeah it's interesting so I have a a four-year-old daughter and a six-month-old son and with our daughter um and we knew uh in advance we found out the sex of both of our babies um and I can't remember if we we shared with a few people um in advance um but with our daughter in a way um so I feel like a Bris is a very ancient tradition. Rituals around um, welcoming baby girls are are newer and there's more room for innovation. So that was one of the things that was exciting for us. Not that there isn't room for innovation in a bris. Well, this is actually where I um, sort of surprised myself. So with our daughter, we were really creative about the ceremony that we we did for her, a, a simchat bat and... Um, we read all these things. We um, worked with one of our favorite rabbis, Kohenet, uh, Rabbi Jill Hammer, to create a ceremony to welcome our daughter and, and all kinds of ritual moments um, with hand washing and, and feet washing and wrapping her in a talit and music and all of these things. And then when our son was born, I like... I don't know. I wasn't even thinking creatively about it. It was like, oh, a bris. You know, it's on the eighth day. I mean, thank God he was he was healthy. We were able to do it on the eighth day. I think there's also something that, like, the eighth day, you're postpartum. Like, right. it's insane. You can't like, do, yeah. like, how would you have an opportunity to, like, plan something creative? Like, it, right. Yeah. And I didn't even realize until after. So there's a blessing, traditionally the blessing that you say at the, at the bris before the circumcision, before the mila. Um, traditionally, it's understood that it's an obligation. If you know, if there is a father, it's the obligation of the father to circumcise the son. And so the the um, the Moyle, who was you know lovely and wonderful, he just like turned to Yosef and was like, "Say this blessing," and I didn't even say it. Yosef, my husband, said the blessing, and then after I was like, "Why didn't I say the blessing?" Like I didn't even think about the aspects mm-hmm. of it that weren't um, egalitarian and and 
try and, you know, to try and rethink them and make them in that way. I think I'll just blame it on the fact that I had a baby. Yeah, I was going to say. Days ago. I had no idea what was going on. I was like impressed that, you know, we all like somehow made it out of the house that day. But, um, uh, that's me. We were rambling a little bit about our no. experience and in ways that it surprised me just how traditional, how I, you know, clung, clung to the tradition. Whereas, um, and I've been to, you know, rituals of friends welcoming baby boys that are, um, more creative and innovative as well, taking, um, some, uh, rituals that were created for welcoming baby girls and mm-hmm. um, bringing them to bris ceremonies as well. It is one of the, I, I think the timing is an interesting piece that there's so much more flexibility. In some ways, there's just, I, I mean, there's just more time to have an intentional ceremony that you create if you have a baby girl you're not bound in that same like it happens on the eighth day if you know if everything is okay with the baby um and it's that sort of like i think for people who i'm who i've been talking with it's that sort of creativity that i think is necessary both for baby welcoming ceremonies and i think maybe for bar and bat mitzvah um that you want to be able to be intentional and creative, ideally, if that's your thing, um, for these ceremonies. And, and I'm, I'm thinking explicitly about how to be creative around gender issues and egalitarian issues of, you know, the parents and, I don't know, yeah. I, like, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot around this is, like, <clears throat> we know what a bris looks like. Like we know what's going to happen at a bris. And Asim Chabat is like a little bit different, but basically because like nothing needs to happen other than like talking about the child's name. Like many mm-hmm. times people have Asim Chabat after they've revealed the name publicly. Mm-hmm. So it's not even like, what is the name going to be? It's just like a kind of, formal introduction of a child into the community with a name and an explanation of the name. Um, But like people have introduced all kinds of other rituals as part of that. And we're not obviously going to start circumcising babies that don't have penises. But like, I just get stuck in this, like, I want to be inclusive. Like these kids might end up being trans, but also being like, but if they're not, we have to give the boy babies a bris. Like, there's just mm-hmm. no way around. I mean, obviously, some people don't circumcise. But right. I am I am not including those people in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Because for them, I guess it's actually a much easier um, solution. But, like, how... I guess I just feel like my gut reaction at this point is, like, you just take your best guess... And then if you're wrong, then you say like, whoops, actually, this baby isn't Sam, it's Sally or whatever. And like, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And if it's not like a, if there's a kind of like openness to that, then then that seems acceptable to me. Um, 
But I do like, you know, there are people who are like trying to raise their kids without gender. And I just mm-hmm. do feel like I don't really know how you would do that. Like you the, like a Brit Mila basically like forces you to not do that on mm-hmm. the eighth day. Like you can't get very far. Um, I, I actually feel fine about that. But I'm like wondering if maybe that's like not good. Like maybe we should be. I don't know. I don't think it's transphobic, but like, is there a solution that we, or is it just Mm. not make sense to have something that isn't gender essentialist at this point? Because like, how could we know what these Mm -hmm. kids' genders are? There's some powerful prayers on on Ritual Well on the website. Um, Prayers for making gender decisions Mm -hmm. for a child Mm -hmm. or sort of like doing the ritual with some humility that as a parent there's Mm -hmm. so much that you don't know yet and you know with what limited information you have about your child making this right decision for them at that point in their life with an openness like setting a covenant intention that they will be able to make choices of their own as they grow yeah that's cool i like that i should look at some of those and then on the other, like, not the other end of life, because it's, like, not even that far from that. Mm-hmm. But um, A few years later. Right. right. <laughs> um, a few years later, you have the possibility of a bar or a bat mitzvah. And it's interesting. I have been seeing a lot of people talk about, like, ways that they're taking the gender out of that. And, like, the way that I would do a bar or a bat mitzvah in my family would have no gendered aspects to the ritual but I like found myself having a like visceral negative reaction to the idea of taking the of of degendering the language like specifically there's like a movement towards calling them B mitzvahs instead of bar or bat mitzvahs and I just hate that so much. <laughs> I really don't get like it's not meaningful in Hebrew or English and um it looks bizarre to me and also I think it is supposed to evoke this idea that like you should be a mitzvah but like what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't hold any actual, yeah. You I... shall be a mid. Bring the little yes. Debbie Friedman. Yeah. Like a little Debbie. Debbie. Right. Does need Debbie Friedman. Yeah, well, but Debbie Friedman did not, a blessed memory, <laughs> yeah. did not, like, live to write a beautiful, soulful tune for B mitzvahs. Mm-hmm. And I personally am fine with that. But I understand that maybe I have a not i have uh, maybe i'm clearly coming at this with a gender essentialist lens i feel like there should be something for for kids that are non-binary or trans but i guess i'm just like not it feels weird to me to deny the fact that kids do have a gender identity at this point or to kind of like take the gender identity out of it because i do think that like it has historically been something about like becoming a man or becoming a woman. And that is meaningful, not to everybody. And some people who are becoming men grew up as little girls or whatever, but like, and vice versa. But I feel like there is something about like having a, 
coming of age ceremony like at that moment that does like suggest that it is kind of about your gender identity i don't know somebody help me here (laughs) i mean i well it's interesting to me tomorrow that it sounds like your main struggle is around what to call it um which i hear i mean i get that i i wonder if in some ways what we need is like yes let's have these gendered rituals and let's also like do some thinking and be open to innovation around what would the gender fluid um option be for kids so that not every family has to like do that on their own and do that thinking. I'm sure that somewhere, and maybe even Ritual Well has some of this, but I'm sure that somewhere people have shared, right, moving tradition, people have shared what they've done for their 12 or 13 year old who's not into this like gender defining experience, but still wants to become an adult in the Jewish community and read Torah in front of their community. Um, yeah. Right. No, I was going to say in an egalitarian community, um, there really isn't a difference in what it looks like as far as ritual, presumably that, you know, teens, regardless of gender could do the same things or not do the same things. Right. Right. So then it is just sort of an issue of what do we call it? I'm with you on B mitzvah. It sounds like something from like 2004, too yeah. like it sounds like weird branding i don't know <laughs> yeah all right well, what would you call it um will you post this on your facebook page tomorrow yes and i feel like there were some interesting responses as i recall yes yeah, so i suggested maybe if you wanted one that had no that was had no gender involved in the term then you could say Zman mitzvah. So the question oh, is nice. also like, are you talking about an event? Like a a bat mitzvah literally means like a daughter of the commandment. And like in theory, you become a bat mitzvah when you turn a certain age and then you just are one for the rest of your life. And a bat mitzvah, the way we like talk about it colloquially is actually an event. You know, like she had her bat mitzvah on, you know, October 26th. Um, and so that is, so that's kind of confusing because like the Hebrew term means something different than how we use it in American English. And I think also in other, other Englishes. Um, so if we're talking about like the event, then we could call it like a Zman mitzvah, even though like any moment Zman means time. So, like, any moment could be the time that you do a mitzvah. But, like, and theoretically, many moments should be. But, um, but like, you could still call it that. And some people ca- said, I think, Makabelet um, mitzvah, like, the person who receives the mitzvah. Um, and, yeah, there were a few other suggestions. But none of them, like thrilled me um but i don't know i i'm not sure how much any of this should matter if we want to get real we could call it kabbalat ol mitzvah yeah receiving the the burden (laughs) of the yoke 
of the uh, commandments. Ooh, that is that is bleak, um, <laughs> but real. I like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's bleak, you just put it in Hebrew, and then it's less bleak. Right. You know. <laughs> um, um, yeah, and then you translate it to Yiddish if you want it to be even more bleak. Yeah, um, you have a party and you serve a lot of schnitzel. Right, re-frozen, thawed, heated up. Yeah, that's so sad. With great so condiments, yeah. um, pickles. Yeah, I guess, and I the other part of um, the kind of okay. So another thing that I really hate is b'nai mitzvah, which people use as the term for bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs but b'nai is also gendered technically like b'nai is Mm. the male plural form um and so and also i don't know i just don't like the sound of it like i know that's not actually a good reason for most things but it just like doesn't really work for me um another aspect of the issue with um, with this coming of age ceremonies, maybe that's just, I'm just going to go for English, um, is it pushes kids in a direction. It pushes kids to make a public statement about their gender identity in a way that like also maybe doesn't feel great to all kids. Um, like for some kids, I feel like it is not a big deal, but, um, but that is definitely an age when you might still really be figuring it out. Um, and given that I'm like in my thirties and I have friends who have just come out as trans, like in the past couple of years, I think that that people coming out and people coming out as trans are things that are like definitely happening earlier and earlier in people's lives, but there's still going to be people who are not getting to Mm. that place until later in their lives. And so, I don't know. I'm kind of mixed on like if we make a a term that is kind of like intentionally vague about gender identity, are we should we just put everybody in that category? Hmm. I just thought of one. Yeah. Maybe nishmat mitzvah, like your neshama, oh. like from the soul. Oh. I don't know if that's grammatically hmm. correct, but like somehow that your soul Becomes the commandments. But soul <laughs> itself is sort of gender. It's not gender. I mean, everyone right. has an ashama. Right. No matter what your gender yeah. identity is. Yeah. I think it's an interesting challenge and one that, um, one that I hope Jewish communities are like supporting families and kids in. Um, it just, it sounds like a really these are these are really tough questions if you are taking seriously tradition and a different understanding of gender and if if you're a kid who has a different gender identity it's a, it's that's a really tough it's a tough thing to come up against centuries of tradition um and and feel not and feel alienated from so it's i think it's a really important conversation yeah 
I I am surprised at myself that I f- I'm like feeling such a strong like I want I do I have friends who are really like they're just we shouldn't have gendered spaces anymore like that's not a thing that we need um but I you know sometimes I hang out in groups of women and it's great (laughs) like that I there's a lot that I value in that like specific experience um and you know I want I don't want that to go away and so I think that there's part of the like part even though part of me is like there's really nothing about a bar or a bat mitzvah that I feel like um needs to be specifically gendered I also feel a kind of like, I don't want to just be like, take all the gender out of it because especially when you're like 12 or 13, like your gender identity and gender expression is such a big part of your life. Not for every kid, but um, it certainly can be. And to kind of like take that out of it, I don't know, it just seems like that's some of the richness of the experience of being that age um but not for every like for some people they never have that feeling and for some people it doesn't come till later so I don't know basically shrug emoji (laughs) (laughs) um yeah but I would like to hear yeah what what other folks have done for a non-binary coming of age Jewish yeah ritual and I'm, I want to explore this nishmat mitzvah. Yeah. I kind of did. I like that. I like it. And I also want to hear from people who, like, maybe had a pre- pretty conventional bar bat mitzvah and then later were like, oh, actually, I'm trans or I'm non-binary. And, like, what do they think mm. about that experience? Like, mm. how do they feel about it now? Um, because I just spent a lot of time thinking about how this stuff seems to be, like, hard to pin down for mm-hmm. some people and so then how do you make space for that um hmm. i don't know for for the two of you in thinking about your experiences becoming bat mitzvah but no mitzvah <laughs> i'm thinking like the gendered experience for me was like sort of in the obsession over you know what to wear right. and the right there's also class dynamics and other things right but I remember getting this enormous fight with my mother over how I could wear my hair I wanted uh-huh. it up in a French twist and you know I went to the hairdresser to get it done before the party and she was insisting it was like too mature uh-huh. <laughs> like too much coming of age you know so we we compromised I think I wore it half up but I remember this big blowout you know fight over the hair and over the dress and switching the dress and yes. all of those things. Like there was a lot about sort of physical appearance. Um, yeah. And wondering if that was the I don't think it was the same for my brother. I mean, whatever. Right. He got a suit. He got a tie and done. <laughs> right. right. I, the, I, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I was – I really loved – becoming a bat mitzvah I loved reading from Torah I loved like sharing a Devar Torah it was like the first public speaking I had really ever done I was like this is great I feel good and in charge um and you're all listening um but the and I I remember feeling you know like 
feeling really nervous about what I was going to wear compared to what all of the other girls who had had a bat mitzvah, what they had worn. Um, the hardest thing was when my parents came up to bless me in a reformed congregation, like the parents sometimes give a little speech to, my dad said, Mimi, today you're becoming a woman, though in some ways you've been a woman for a few months now. Because I had gotten my period before this. I, I... can you, can you, do you identify, do you understand how mortifying that oh, was? Oh, my lord. Um, and I don't think he was thinking about the period, but like he said months. Like right. that's uh-huh. just so period related. Dad. Yeah. Right. Um, and somebody signed on like the phone core board, you know, you would like get people to sign yeah. your board at your bat mitzvah. Somebody signed like, Mimi, today you're an, a woman. Like in science class, ha ha. Like, oh God, everybody knows. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I liked my bat mitzvah, but I actually, I liked the, I liked doing the ritual stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I liked reading Torah and leading davening and giving Advar Torah and like. Yeah, that that stuff was, like, fun and exciting. It was an accomplishment because I had been working for it for a long time. And, like, yeah. So definitely there was a lot of shopping for the dress and whatever. But it was not that – like, I think it wouldn't have been that different if I was a boy. But I don't know. I, my, I have two sisters, so it's, like, my mom – this is interesting. I, I was about to say my mom never planned a bar mitzvah. And that <laughs> reveals like another gendered aspect mm. to a bar bar mitzvah, which is like somebody plans it and it's usually not the dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's interesting too. Um, I never really thought about that gendered aspect mm-hmm. of a bar bar mitzvah, but I think it's one that I'm going to experience. So, <laughs> probably yeah all right shall we move along to our endorsements yes okay mimi what would you like to endorse this month um so i want to endorse i want to endorse two things i i was not only binging schtissel i was also binging tidying up with marie kondo oh. on netflix um I am very curious if other Jews, I'm sure they have watched this show. Um, I was like, I can do the clothes. Does it spark joy? Yes. No. Great. With books, she has, Marie Kondo, she, you know, her whole thing is like tidying up means also like figuring out, like really greeting your stuff, figuring out what you have, coming to terms with it, and figuring out, like, does this spark joy? Do I want it going forward in my life? I have so many books that I can't get rid of because I feel this, like, Jewish guilt that I mean, I can't get rid of, like, I'm not going to get rid of, like, a humash or, like, um, any like tractate of Talmud or any like holy books, but even just like 
I don't know, somebody gave me a book that this woman, woman, um, rabbi wrote. And I feel like I can't just get rid of it. What I'm going to give it to goodwill. Who knows who'll get it, but I, it doesn't spark joy. So I was having a really hard time with the books and I, particularly when it came to like my Jewish books. Um, so I think it, I don't know. It was just interesting to me to recognize that like novels, great nonfiction, easy Jewish books, more loaded, a little harder. Like it might spark joy and it might spark lots of other feelings <laughs> that she doesn't talk about. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. However, the show is phenomenal. I love her. She's adorable. Um, and yeah, it's like pretty fun to watch. There's also great, like, I don't know, they do this, she does this ritual of like greeting the home when she first enters somebody's home and thanking it for all that it does to protect the people in it. And, you know, I, I think we have in my home, we have rituals around time, um, you know, for Shabbat, for like bedtime rituals, we have rituals for holidays, but it's interesting also to have a ritual around space. I guess we have a mezuzah, um, but that to me is just something that I pass by so quickly. But it was interesting to think about like, this space is also really helpful and really important and holy because of all of the things that we get to do in this space that we've built. Um, so I loved Marie, tidying up with Marie Kondo and on a more explicitly Jewish note, um, I learned a new song that I really liked. Um, it's called Ani Yeshena. Um, it comes from Shira Shirim from Song of Songs. And um, I will, I can't, I'm not a very good singer, but I'll include links to um, to the version of the song that I really like. But uh, in particular, I liked this part. Um, it so Shira Shirim is like Song of Songs is you know kind of sexy, but it's um, one of the things is open to me, my sister, my love, my dove. Uh, I just I loved like the use of my sister in this verse. It's so like I don't know. I feel like we don't get we don't have many things that are about sisterhood. Um, and it just is a really beautiful song. So I'm excited to share that with you. I was excited to learn it and that's it. Um, Annie, do you have something to endorse? Uh, sure. So recently a friend also, uh, was asking on Facebook for recommendations of great new albums or Jewish music for, for kids and babies. So, um, a friend, Allie Halpert, just came out with this awesome album called Nipple Confusion um, <laughs> for queer families and kids. And um, it's just amazing music. Allie has an awesome voice and the songs are super creative and catchy and um, been listening to it with our, our little ones at home. So Nipple Confusion, Allie Halpert, um, check it out. And also a podcast um, that I've been listening to a lot, Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H. She's a teacher of mindfulness and a psychotherapist. I think she's based in the D.C. area. And she's also just hilarious and a brilliant 
storyteller and um I just I, I listen to her podcast. I have kind of a long commute to work and it's um I try not to fall asleep <laughs> with the, in the meditations. Yeah. But other than that, she's just uh I feel like brilliant and helps me just feel better about life and the world and um Tara Brock, Allie Halpert. Awesome. Thank you to both of them. I definitely want to listen to anything that makes you feel better about the world because mm. I could use that. Um, I have three endorsements, a triple endorsement. So um, the first is kind of log rolling, but I want to – so uh, Annie spoke at the Philadelphia Women's March this past weekend, and um, she spoke so beautifully. There's an incredible – recording of it which I um which made me cry so um that is my a number one endorsement because it is so so good um and you know we already did like a long episode about the women's march stuff so uh, I didn't want to revisit it this week but or this month but um obviously things got more intense in the past couple of months around it um and the Call Your Girlfriend podcast did an episode on the Women's March, which I was, like, really dreading listening to because um, I just feel kind of exhausted by all the discourse around it. But I was really pleasantly surprised. I thought they did actually a really good job of talking about it and um, helping to kind of, like, clear some of the air around it. But... Um, also like taking the concerns that people had really seriously. Like I didn't feel like they were saying nobody should be upset about this or that. They were just kind of talking about it in a way that I, I found to be really helpful. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to endorse was, um, uh, Dvar Torah that, um, I heard at our school two weeks ago. So, um, there's, uh, someone in our shul, Jonathan Friedan, and his mother, Betty, you might have heard of. She wrote The Feminine Mystique. And um, two weeks ago, he gave like a really powerful um, drash about, about Betty and about kind of what it was like to be her child and what it was like to watch um, her as this like great feminist leader from this position of being her child. And I thought that was just fascinating, and he was really thoughtful and and wise about um, what he said. And I, you know, it's always fascinating to hear about kind of larger-than-life people, what they were like in their just, like, regular day-to-day lives. Um, But what I thought was really special about this was that it was really um, Jonathan kind of thinking uh, about both what she did um, for women all over the world and also like how she was as a mom and what kind of a legacy she left him with um, as a person. And I thought that was just really moving and special. And, and it was really exciting to be able to um, to hear it. So I will post a link to to that drash as well on our show notes. Tamar, 
I forgot an endorsement I wanted to share. Would it be possible to weave this into? Yeah, or we'll just, you you just have round two. Go for it. Okay. Um, (laughs) On the topic of innovation around bar and bat mitzvah, um, I wanted to share a Washington Post article. I think it's been shared on a few different platforms um, about a young woman, a young modern Orthodox woman who became bat mitzvah and is blind. Um, did you guys read this? Yeah, you hear it was about this? so cool. Yeah, so cool what she and her family did. And the article really gets into some of the sort of structural challenges around having a traditional bat mitzvah, but needing certain you know what 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 people who are blind need um and there's no braille for trope so how did she learn trope um and just i I thought it was a really amazing article a not not the article (laughs) what this family and this young woman Bata did um just so cool how how dedicated she was um to having this experience that her peers were having and really how hard she and her family worked to make it happen. So I'm excited to share that in the show notes as well. Yeah, that was an awesome article and just an amazing family. All right. Well, that is it for us this month. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, We also always want to hear from you about what you would like us to discuss in future episodes. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. You just search for Jewish Public Media um, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a great way to support our show and make sure that we're able to keep bringing you new episodes every month. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thanks. This was awesome. Thank you, Annie. We're so happy that you were able to come this month. Thank you, Tamar and Mimi, for having me on the show. So how about we really miss you, and we'll see all of you next month. Singing nipple confusion, nipple confusion, nipple confusion. Nipple confusion, nipple confusion, nipple confusion.